You're listening to Modern Animism Radio. I'm your host, Laura Giles. Thank you all for tuning in. One of the topics that I get asked about a lot is sovereignty. It seems that people get the general idea, but not how to apply it in a global way. Or maybe they get it and want to apply it without considering the connection piece. So today I'm going to kind of blend a bunch of questions into one podcast so that you can see sovereignty and connection in a more dynamic way in the context of relationships. So let's give gratitude to the elements and ancestors, acknowledge and thank the element of earth for the home, food, foundation, beauty, sensuality, and stability that surround us all. Acknowledge and thank the element of air for the clean, clean, clear communication that can help us increase understanding between people. Acknowledge and thank the element of fire for giving us the power to create change and a sense of responsibility to keep things balanced. Acknowledge the element of water and thank you for sustaining our lives and reminding us to flow. Acknowledge and thank our loving, helping ancestors from the human, plant, animal, and mineral kingdoms. And I thank you all for the help that we receive that is seen and unseen. And of course, I send gratitude and thanks to everyone who is listening today. If any of our shows inspire or help you, please consider donating to the program. We don't sell anything or have any fees, so we rely on your donations to keep us going. And you can donate on our website at www.pansociety.net or from the Podbean app. If money is an issue, you can also help by liking, commenting, and sharing our posts on social media. It's the way that um, Google says you're worthy. And if they think we're worthy, then they're going to put us up there higher where more people can see us. So it's such an easy thing to do, but it helps our rankings so we get better placement and and, uh, people see us and you can help in that way. So if you benefit at all, I ask that you return that energy in the form of some sort of support to honor the spirit of reciprocity. So for those who are just tuning in for the first time, let's start with some definitions. So sovereignty refers to taking responsibility for your own thoughts, feelings, survival, happiness, property, relationships, livelihood, and everything that makes up your personal bubble. It requires that you know yourself, be yourself, and hopefully love yourself. And connection is about sharing your authentic self with others while allowing them to be sovereign too. And by others, I mean all creatures, whether they're plant, animal, human, mineral, or spiritual. Sounds like an ideal world, doesn't it? A world where we can all be authentic, self-reliant, and respected. And it's not that easy because we don't live in a society with those values. It's not second nature. It's not what we're taught. But that doesn't mean we can't do something different and live in a more healthy, holistic way. So let's start with what does this look like first using the master-servant analogy. So some relationships are servant-servant. And this is where neither one takes on um, leadership or power. So if you're in a relationship, if you've seen a relationship where it's kind of like, you know, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? I don't know. What are you going to do? And that just kind of goes around and around and around like that. That's what that servant-servant looks like. Um, And this can last a long time because it's kind of in a space of inertia. Usually no one has got the leadership to leave. And some uh, relationships are master-master. So if you're in a relationship that's high conflict where both people want to dominate and lead and there's lots of arguing, uh, that's what that master-master looks like. And um, this could actually go on for a long time because some people are addicted to conflict. So they think it's sexy. They think it's a sign of... uh, um, 
how connected they are because there's usually a lot of makeup um, um, <laughs> fun. So it, it can be fun for people who like that kind of thing. The most common uh, relationships are master-servant. And even though we're talking about two, there's actually a triangle. It's a triangle of victim, oppressor, hero. So the master is, is usually the oppressor or the hero, and the servant is always the victim. And we see this in organizations, politics, and other social structures too. The way that we talk about bullying is an example of this codependent thinking. So full disclosure, I was harassed when I was a kid. I didn't look like other people. I was literally in a class by myself for reading because my level was so accelerated. And we didn't have the same religion as other people. We didn't eat the same food. So there was lots of reasons that I was an outlier. And it's animal nature to pick on the outlier because being different mean that you have defective genes or a disease. And animals will isolate the weak and deformed to preserve the health of the tribe. So it's natural and it's normal, but it's not so nice when you're on the receiving end. But I didn't call this bullying when I was little or even think of it that way until I was talking to a friend who is a bullying coordinator, and she identified it as such. And that's when it dawned on me that bullying isn't about one person picking on another. It's about power. When I was little, I never felt like a victim. I never felt disempowered because I didn't give up my power. Now, I want to be clear about something. We all have power. Power is like dignity. It comes from within, and it can't be taken. It can only be surrendered. Uh, if you've heard Viktor Frankl from um, uh, Man's Search for Meaning, his book, uh, he endured the horror of the Holocaust um, in Auschwitz because he didn't allow them to take his dignity or inner peace. And that's kind of what his whole book was about. You know, lots of horrible things can happen around you and to you, but it doesn't make you a victim. You become a victim when you give up your power. And this is also how crisis counselors help people who were sexually assaulted. We help them see that, yes, they were violated, they were wronged, but who they are, their power, and their dignity is still intact. So they're survivors, not victims. And survivors have their power. Victims don't. And you might ask, um, how did I do that as a little kid? And I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even think about it at the time. Um, so this happened to me over and over. There were periods when it happened daily, but I was um, thinking of it more of, of surviving the moment, not being my whole life. And I saw it as something that was wrong with them, not with me, because I didn't see myself as bad or wrong or whatever they were seeing when they were targeting me. So it was really about perspective. And I may have had conversations with my parents about it. I don't remember. Um, so if I did, there certainly weren't many. I don't remember asking them to handle it. Um, I just avoided the bullies. There were actually few physical encounters. It was mainly threats and gossip, which is bad enough, but I wasn't hurt by that. It's like I understood at a really young age that if someone offers you a gift and you refuse, to whom does the gift belong? Well, of course it's theirs. I didn't pick up their stuff. So another way of saying that was I always retained my sovereignty. I knew who I was. My ancestors had my back. My family had my back. And there was nothing that they could take away. And my skills were objectively quantified, so my self-esteem was on solid ground too. It wasn't like my parents were telling me I was a rock star and I couldn't tie my shoes or I couldn't make my own sandwich. You know what I mean? So let's go back to the topic of victim 
your oppressor because we see this in society, particularly around racism or poverty. I know a lot of people want to be good, decent, and kind humans. And the way that we often do that is not empowering. It's a continuation of the victim-hero-oppressor triangle, and it decreases sovereignty because it continues to put people that we're trying to help in the victim role. For example, I did a volunteer trip to a Native American reservation and heard a lot of complaints about how dirty, poor, and unsafe it was. I heard a lot of, why don't they just blah, 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 blah. You know, lots of people wanted to help, and that's why we all came. And the overall message was, you poor thing, you have it so bad. I have all the answers and resources. If you just trust me, if you help me, you can be like me. So first of all, they didn't want to be like us. That's part of why they live the way they do. It's a rejection of our lifestyle. It's the same values that got them on the reservation to begin with. They don't, they don't want that. And second, they have to have their own wisdom and solutions, and this attitude invalidates that. It's a way of saying that their wisdom isn't enough. Third, it's condescending, and it keeps them in a low power position. It keeps them victims. So I totally see why they reject that, and I don't blame them. And we do this with racism, too. We look at people of color as disadvantaged. We make them conform to our rules, then lower the bar to make it easier for them to get across. Or we give them the pass. It's like saying, you can only do this with our help. You're not good enough to do this on your own. Okay. Sidebar for a second. Okay. So let me interject for a, section, or for a second because I'm catching myself. And you might hear me play both sides of the fence because I am on both sides of the fence. I'm obviously a person of color, but I have pale family members too. I reject no one and identify as both. So my people were both oppressor and oppressed. So when I say we, I mean me too. Cool? And a sidebar. So we treat them with suspicion. And I know some of you are going to deny this, but in 2010, I think it was, uh, ABC News or some mainstream news outlet did this social experiment where a blonde fit woman a light-skinned man and a dark-skinned man, dressed the same way as the pale guy, all tried to steal a bike. They all asked for help and openly admitted that the bike wasn't theirs. Some people actually helped the woman. No one stopped the pale guy, and many people called the police on the dark-skinned guy. The only thing different was the skin color. So regardless of what we say, we see color as threatening, and it's time we accepted that and challenged ourselves to be different. So until we are, you know, kind of mindful of where we are, I don't think things are going to change. So just putting that out there. And as long as we're there, it makes it really tempting to be the hero and bend over backwards to help these poor, downtrodden people. But the problem with that is that it reinforces that they're victims and someone is the oppressor. And that's a power struggle. Nobody is sovereign in that scenario. As long as we have that victory, or a victim, hero, oppressor thing going on, or servant, servant, master, master, or master, servant, we live in a world of separation and inequality. So that's the first thing we need to fix if we want to be truly sovereign. Or even just within ourselves, our own mindset. We don't have to fix the world. We just fix ourselves. And an equal, equal or sovereign, sovereign relationship is the only healthy one. So you step into your greatness. Allow others to shine in all their glory, even if what they're projecting doesn't seem to be all that smart or practical to you. It's not your business to save people who aren't asking for help. And even when they do ask for help, only give what's being asked for. So let me give you another example. In the last two to three years, 
uh, I'm starting to see a lot of people in my counseling practice who appear to have had ideal childhoods. They had comfort, food, participated in sports, went to summer camp, went to college. And some of them are still living at home and unable to support themselves or even get a job at all. Some of them have really great jobs but feel emotionally unable to connect with others. Some of these people were latchkey kids and some had helicopter parents. But the common denominator is that they grew up in homes where they weren't allowed sovereignty. They either had everything done for them or they were told exactly what to do and didn't want to make any mistakes or learn anything for themselves. So they don't know who they are. They can't relate to others well because if you don't have a foundation and sovereignty, you can't connect. So what is the other person supposed to connect to? That's a gigantic deal, not just for spirituality, but for being a human being. Sovereignty is first. It's the foundation. You have to be able to know who you are, feel good about that person, and be that person in the public eye, and to stand in the fullness of your power without guilt, shame, apologies, or anything that isn't dignity. So learning how to be sovereign starts in childhood. It's the difference between telling a child what he's going to wear and giving him a choice. The latter creates a sense of, I have a choice. My choice matters. I have power. It's a small but really important thing. Another example is enrolling your child in a team sport where everyone wins versus one that keeps score. And self-esteem doesn't come from being told that you're good and worthy. It comes from earning it. If there's a set of criteria that everyone can reach if they put the work in, those who reach for it will have an unshakable faith in their skill or knowledge. I used to teach dance, and there was a bar. The criteria was clear. Each time a student hit it, bing, it was acknowledged. And when they didn't, I gave them clear instructions on how to get closer next time. So their performance was a direct um, was directly tied to their efforts. It wasn't about, I like you better so you get more opportunity. And if a person is validated fairly and given unconditional regard for their personhood, they're going to have self-esteem. They're going to learn that. So you don't learn self-esteem from things that you can't control alone. It's both. Yes, we're all beautiful souls, and we all appreciate um, each other and not for the things that we do. And together, that creates self-esteem and a respect for the impact that we have on others. So if I am rewarded for showing up, I don't value uh, showing up. If I'm rewarded for looking good, somewhere deep inside of me, I know that that can be taken away in a moment, the moment that I don't look good. So we all need ways of belonging that we both earn and that are a birthright. It contributes to connection and self-worth. So connection has to be taught too. So many people don't feel it. They don't know what it is, how to get it or how to give it. So they try to buy it or get it through sex, to marry into it, make up stories about their ancestors or I don't know. You know, some give up and shut humans out or get it from nature, animals and spirit. So what I really want to talk about today, though, was the practical human-to-human ways to have sovereignty and connection within relationships. So let me give you some examples, okay? I think it will make it, uh, bring it down to earth. So one, if you don't want to date somebody, politely decline. I hear so many people say, I want to be nice. I want to give him a chance. Why? If you know that it's not a match, all you're doing is going to, Go down a road that's a diversion. 
it's not who you want and it doesn't match who you are. So you're either going to spend time doing things you don't want to do with someone you don't want to be with, only to have a harder time of disentangling later, or you're going to end up spending your life with someone who is not a match. And that's not a good idea for either party. If you don't click with someone, be kind to both of you and say no up front. Number two. Lots of people start dating, and when their partner wants to go to a basketball game, they enthusiastically say yes, even though they don't like basketball. So the partner thinks, cool, I'm getting a partner who loves what I love, only to find out later that that's not the case. Then later when they're married and the partner stops going, they say, you've changed. No, they didn't really change. They never liked basketball to begin with. They just stopped pretending, and this happens a lot. So you can save a lot of heartache if you don't pretend. Just be authentic. So am I saying don't ever do things that you don't want to do? No. Um, but what I'm suggesting is maybe you do find things that the two of you like to do so it's a win-win, so it doesn't come across as fake or the other person doesn't feel swindled. So if it's a win-win, you both have fun, then you both will keep having fun together. So number three, I get a lot of questions about twin flames, particularly twin flame runners. And this is the idea that if you're meant to be with someone who either isn't recognizing the connection or agreed at first and then changed their mind later. So look, running. And um, I do believe in a lot of things for which there are no proof. I probably have a lot of fantastic and superstitious beliefs. What I don't do is project them onto other people. It's a violation of sovereignty. So no means no. Even if the other person is confused, is being swayed by someone else, or has some other excuse not to know his own mind, no means no. To pursue someone who has said no or expresses no interest is a violation of sovereignty. It leads to me too, where one person is saying or expressing no and the other person isn't taking that for an answer. I hope I'm saying that very plainly. Yes, it could mean that the other person is making mistakes they'll regret forever and it's their right to make it. No means no. Clear? Okay, number four. Does your partner make you feel guilty for taking time to yourself, spending time with your friends or family, or for being at work? This is emotional manipulation and a violation of sovereignty. We all have the right to have other things, other people, and interests in our lives. They help us to be fulfilled, stimulated, and grow. Our partner isn't our only care. We have to put ourselves first. When we're whole and happy, We bring love, light, and all good things to the relationship. When we're tired, worn out, exhausted, we aren't the best partners. So let yourself shine always. It's better for both of you. And don't manipulate or let yourself be manipulated by others. Both partners need to be their highest and best selves, and we do that by taking care of ourselves. Number five. Now let's say that you're married. Uh, Where's the line then? Well, uh, marriage is a partnership where two people become one. That's what the ritual is for. If it's not that, then call it something else. When it's not that, the chances of a divorce are much higher. So becoming one with someone means that the line dividing me and we is closer and more blurry. And this is my suggestion. It's not a law. But I believe that that means that anything that affects the other person must be disclosed. 
So plans to relocate, spending time with someone you're attracted to, spending money over a certain amount, health issues, mental health issues, and things like that can't be kept secret. They impact the peace of mind, livelihood, and health of the other person. Everyone gets to make the rules for their own relationship. So something to think about. You know, if it impacts you or it impacts someone else, share it. Number six, if you rely on your partner to calm you down when you're emotional, you're violating sovereignty. Your emotional health and well-being is your responsibility. You're the adult. You don't get to rage and cry and make it someone else's problem. So if you want to rage and cry, go ahead and rage and cry. That's sovereignty. You can do that. But it's not someone else's problem to fix it for you. There's no rescuing for sovereign people. I know it's not easy to be self-regulating, but it's a whole lot healthier for the relationship. And we all want healthy relationships, don't we? Number seven. If you want to play hero and rescue people, you might actually instigate a breakdown in your partner so that you can swoop in and be the good guy. And that's not cool either. Remember, there's no heroes and no victims. Number eight. Are you expecting your partner to read your mind? I know a lot of disappointment happens on Valentine's Day, birthdays, and anniversaries because one party has loads of expectations but didn't make any plans. So when the big surprise isn't happening, there can be resentment that nobody read your mind. And the key to that is to ask for what you want. Include the other person in your plan. Don't think that there is a plan until it's agreed on by both people. And don't sit back and wait for it to happen. If you want something to happen, make it happen. That's being a sovereign. Number nine, if your mother and partner want something at the same time, does your mother come first? Do you need the mother's approval before you get serious about somebody? Does your mother cause problems between you and your partner? A child's relationship to his parents never ends. However, when a child is initiated into adulthood, he ceases to be a child. He makes his own choices for good or ill. A parent's role is to step back and let that child be an adult, take responsibility for his mistakes, and live his own life. This is impossible if tied to mom's apron strings. Of course, it could be that the child is holding on to mom's ankles and mom is jerking to be set free. In either case, someone has to let go. This is not a sovereign adult. And 10, do you demand loyalty and agreement no matter what? Yes, loyalty is an important component of trust, but so is the freedom to disagree. If you say you prefer blue and your partner likes red, that's not being disloyal. That's speaking up for your personal preference. If you're caught making a mistake and your partner affirms that, yes, you made a mistake, that's not being disloyal. That's being factual and correct. If you don't have the space to be honest, you don't have the space to be authentic, and you're going to lose your identity in this relationship. If you're clingy, needy, or chase people who are detached, unavailable, chances are you have some unresolved childhood issues that are interfering with your ability to have healthy, secure boundaries. Actually learning about sovereignty and practicing it can help, but you also might need therapy, and that's not a bad thing. The cycle needs to end somewhere. So I'm just putting it out there so you kind of you know, gauge where you are. So let's look at connection. I talk about loneliness a lot because it's epidemic. Lots of people have no connections. They might have a big social circle, but not real depth or intimacy. They may have lovers, 
but no one that knows him on the inside. I do many past life regressions every week, and it's almost universal that we go through life after life without meaningful connections. So for the next part of the podcast, I'm going to give you 10 ways to increase connection in your relationships. Keep in mind that you actually have to be in a relationship to practice these, and it's a process, so it's not going to happen overnight. Okay? Ready? So number one. Uh, first, you have to develop the skill of observation or mindfulness. This, that's your you are here button. If you don't know where you are, you can't gauge your own temperature or the temperature of anything around you. And this will give you feedback on whether you withdraw, stay where you are, move closer, or do whatever you're going to do next. So we're always getting feedback. We don't always react to it, though. Most of us are playing a mental movie of what's already happened, and we react to that. To keep from living in the past, Observe. Observe is about taking in data through the senses. What do I see, hear, taste, touch, smell, or intuit? Don't just the data, just take it in. Trust me, if you just do this and do this well, your life will change and put you in a position where connection is not only more likely, but it's happening. Okay? So number two, once you have that information from observation, respond to what is there. Not what you hope is there, not what you think is there, just what is there. That's number two. So don't react. Respond. If you hear someone say that they aren't interested, take them at their word. It's a lot less time-consuming and anxiety-producing when people listen and respect. If someone asks you for a date and you want to go, just say yes. It's that easy. (laughs) And that's actually number three. If you're a yes for something, say yes. Not maybe, don't hit around, just say yes. Remember sovereignty and standing in your power? If you want something, either ask for it or say yes and accept it when it shows up. So number four is just the opposite. If you don't want something, say no. Be clear. Don't beat around the bush. A maybe is confusing. A justification is a hurdle to overcome. What I mean is if you ask me to go to the movies and I say I have to wash my car, you're probably going to start problem solving so that I can get my car washed and go to the movies. Now, if I don't want to go, I might feel like you're twisting my arm, and that's going to be my fault because I just walked into it. I didn't speak up. So if it has nothing to do with washing the car, don't bring it up. And, you know, you don't need a justification anyway, so just say no. It's a complete sentence. No. See? I just did it. Works great. (laughs) So number five is pay attention to the body language. Um, Some statistics say that 70% of language is nonverbal. And it used to be that a guy would know if he had a green light to go in for a kiss or not because it was all in the body language. And nowadays, people have their faces in their phone screens so much that lots of people can't read nonverbal cues. This is you. Pay attention. Body language will tell you when someone's engaged, losing interest, or just totally gone. If you respond skillfully, you can maintain connection. For example, have you ever had someone just talk at you, blah, 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 you know? That's one of the most annoying things ever, isn't it? (laughs) It's like they can't tell that there's no connection and they're suffocating you and sucking all the air out of the room at the same time. You don't ever want to be that guy. You also don't want to be stuck listening to that guy. And you won't be if you pay attention to the nonverbal body language. When someone wants to disengage, you can try once to reengage. And if they don't take the bait, let them off the hook. They aren't obligated to connect with you. So another more common example of that is a greeting. If you ask somebody how they are and they shoot back a polite reply, you're not engaged. You're just doing the social pleasantry thing. 
If they pause, take inventory, and then tell you something more, you know, of substance, they've opened the door a little. So if you switch back to pleasantries, you've broken rapport. It's like they're saying, you know, yes, yes, no. That's what I mean. And if you take it as an opening to talk about you, you've broken rapport. If you listen until they're finished, you're going to maintain rapport. Do you see the difference? I know that just went super, super fast. But this happens all the time, and I think if you slow it down in your mind and be present with it, you'll start to see, ah, rapport, no rapport, rapport, no rapport, um, pleasantry, you know, that kind of thing. Connection, no connection. You could phrase it that way too. So six, another way to make connections is to give eye contact. Again, in the cell phone age, we're often looking down at the phone instead of the person we're with. We'll put the phone away. Just turn it completely off. Be present. Feel your feelings. Be in your body. Be in this moment. This moment's all there is, so don't let it pass without you in it. That's really, really important if you want to have connection. Be here. The other person can't be with you if you're not even here. I mean, that's you got to be here first. Uh, seven is pay attention to the details. Somebody talks about their dog or their upcoming trip or anything that is important to them, reference it later. It shows that you care and we're paying attention. I'm giving, to, giving this to you as a strategy, but it works better when it's genuine. So if you're genuinely interested, you're genuinely paying attention, that's going to shine through. So number eight is to nurture your relationships. This means taking time to develop relationships. Talk about meaningful things. So this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, um, I don't know, the cure to cancer. It just means meaningful things to you. And, you know, share space. Do things that you both enjoy. Show yourself. Show interest in the other person. It's give and take. If you're doing all the giving or the taking or just not showing up at all, you're not creating a relationship. Number nine is to be grateful for the time together, for uh, who the other person is and for anything else that warms your heart. Show your gratitude. So often we get into a rut of complaining. It's so easy to be dissatisfied, but it's equally easy to be grateful. So choose that. It makes your life and the time you spend with the other person more pleasant. And everybody wants to be with others who are pleasant. And finally, number 10 is to show up as your authentic self. I mean, your real self with all your flaws, not Mr. Perfect, with flawless manners and a checklist of things to do for the perfect date. If you're wearing a mask or running a strategy, that's going to show through. So just be yourself. These things are really easy to do when you're invested and interested in the relationship because they just come naturally. Now, it might seem like it's a choice between sovereignty or connection, and the more you give to yourself, the less you'll have for relationships. That's just the way it works. The more you give of yourself in a relationship, the less independence or sovereignty you have. That's true. I wouldn't call sovereignty selfishness, though, because it's a self-indulgence. And if you want to have that connection, you can't be self-indulgent because you have to consider the needs of your partner. On the other hand, how many people have you heard that have lost themselves in a relationship? So you don't want that either. So no relationship is worth losing yourself. As I said, it's about balance. It's really the game of life if you zoom out. You balance our needs as humans with the needs of the plants, the animals, the mineral kingdom, the planet. And when we're self-indulgent, others suffer. 
when we give, appreciate, receive, and participate, it's a win-win. So it's starting to make sense now. So it's like living in the web, and you give to the web, the web gives to you. You don't give too much. You don't take too much. So if this is new to you, it may take some time to digest and become a habit, but you can do it. Hopefully I've given you 10 bite-sized pieces that you can do for practicing sovereignty, 10 bite-sized pieces you can do to practice connection, make it a little easier, and bit by bit by bit it'll start to click for you. And if you have any questions or comments, I invite you to email me at laura at pansociety.net. I'm also on Quora and Reddit, so you can send questions there. Thank you all for joining us for this edition of Modern Animism Radio. Hope it was helpful. If you'd like to donate now to support our show, go to the website at pansociety.net. Be sure to subscribe to our channel so that you can be notified when the next podcast posts. And you can do that on iTunes or Twitter. You can also like us on Facebook. And this is Laura Giles. I'll see you next week. Thanks for being here, guys. Bye.